You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. It's where we're going to be hanging today, Matthew chapter 6. And it would be helpful if you had that um, a Bible out and open on your lap where you can see that. And while you're turning there, if you are new to Stonegate, this is your first time to be here. Thank you so much for visiting us today. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you. And one of the things that would help us serve you better is if you'll make sure during the service you fill out this black card underneath your seat. Um, You'll just take a second to fill that out in a legible way. At the end of the service, if you'll put that card in the basket at the end, that would really help us serve you. So if you'll do that for us, we would be really grateful for that. Matthew chapter 6, we are in part 5 of a set of sermons to the Lord's Prayer, and we have found ourselves in the fifth petition this morning. So let me read the Lord's Prayer to you, and then we'll jump in. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's word. In 1984, a man broke into Jennifer Thompson's apartment. He held a knife to her throat and violated her in the worst ways imaginable. And in what is just a tangible nightmare, if you just can just step into shoes here, what is a tangible nightmare, she had the poise to think, I need to identify things about this man, on this man, scars, tattoos, anything I can, facial features, so that, so that in the case that, that you know, he's apprehended and arrested, that I can actually pick him out. I can actually identify this man. So she did that. She, she recounts in the middle of this moment, just this, I mean, just hellish nightmare, thinking, When, and this is her words, when and if I survive this, I'm going to make sure he's put in prison to rot for the rest of his life. Within a few days, a man was caught. And that man was put in a lineup. She picked the same man that they caught. You know, she picked him out of the lineup. And a few months later, a trial ensues. And she has this courageous moment where she stands up, puts her hand on this Bible and testifies that this is the man who did this to her. And largely based upon her confession, Ronald Cotton was sentenced to life in prison. And you can just imagine all the emotions you would be feeling if you're Jennifer in that moment. Everything from from relief to, to being able to celebrate that justice was done and justice was served. She's feeling all of these things. Then two years later, and she's thinking at this point she can put this behind her and kind of move on with life, but not so. Two years later, there is an appeal. There's another trial. And this time, the defense brings out another suspect that they think did it. And so she's in this moment again. She has to relive the entire, I mean, can you just imagine? She has to relive the entire situation. She has to put her hand on a Bible yet again and testify yet again to the entirety of this thing. And yet again, she says, I have, you know, Ronald Cotton is the man that I saw that night. He is the man who did this to me. I have never seen this other suspect that you have brought uh, to this trial. And again, largely based on her testimony, Ronald Cotton was convicted yet again, sentenced to life in prison yet again. She thinks it's done. 
But 11 years later, and by this time, 11 years later, after this incident, she'd gotten married. She had triplets. She's kind of putting her life together. 11 years after this incident, a detective shows up at her door again and says, would you do one last favor? Would you allow us to take a quick DNA sample so we can kind of run some tests on it? She, uh, you know, quickly says yes to that, thinking that that's just going to kind of solidify the case against Ronald Cotton. So she gives the DNA sample. They show back up a few weeks later, this detective and the district attorney, to let her know that DNA is now proving that Ronald Cotton was not the man. Bobby Poole was the man who committed these just terrible acts against her. And Bobby Poole was the man she said did not do it in that second trial. So you can just imagine what, what, is, you know, what she's feeling here. Essentially, her testimony put a, you know, her false, false, put, put a man in prison, largely based on her testimony. So now she is not only dragging around the, the baggage of what is just a nightmarish moment, but she's also dragging now around the guilt of falsely accusing a man. You know, she remembers asking the DA in that moment, how do I give someone back 11 years of their life? How is that even possible to do that? In a newspaper article titled, Even the Perfect Witness Can Make a Mistake, Helen O'Neill describes how Jennifer kind of moved her life forward from there. She says it this way. For two years, this is two years after learning that, that Cotton was actually innocent, that Ronald Cotton was not the man, that Bobby Poole was the man. For two years, Jennifer Thompson never stopped feeling ashamed. Over and over she wondered, how could she have made such a terrible mistake? How could she have not gotten this right? And what of the man whose life she had ruined? All those years locked away from his family. Now that he was free, she's asking that question. Did, did Ronald Cotton, did he hate her? Then one day she stopped crying. She knew exactly what to do. A few weeks later, she drove 50 miles to a church in the town where she was raped. She had prayed for the strength to face this moment. She had prayed for the strength to face Ronald Cotton. I'm sorry, she said. If I spent every day from the, for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to the, what I, to the way I feel. Ronald Cotton was calm and quiet. Finally, he spoke. I'm not mad at you, he said softly. I've never been mad at you. I just want you to have a good life. For two hours, they sat and talked while their families paced outside. They talked about the pitfalls of memory, about the power of faith, about the miracle of DNA. They talked about Bobby Poole. Ronald went on to say that, that we're both his victims, and Jennifer nodded in agreement. As dusk fell, they made their way out of the church in the parking lot, their families weeping, Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton embraced. Now that story just reacclimates all of our souls to life in a fallen world, doesn't it? It, it reacclimates us to life in a world that's polluted by sin. It reacclimates us to a world that's just not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, we all get that, right? This world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And thankful. Thankfully, by God's grace, but by the fact that he sent his son, it's not the, the, the world we'll one day have, right? I mean, aren't we grateful that there will be a day where stories like this don't happen? But because this is the world we have, the complexity of, of, of sin and hurt and wounds, that this is the world we have. 
This is it. We live in a world where we hurt others and they hurt us. We sin against others and they sin against us. We wound others and, and others wound us. This is the world we have. And because this is the world that you live in and I live in, it makes the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer absolutely applicable, not only to Jennifer's life, not only to Ronald Cotton's life, but to your life. And here's the fifth petition. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You need that, I need that, we need that, right? We, we need that. The, the fifth petition is absolutely applicable to everyone in this room. So we're gonna take a morning to think it through, to think this idea of forgiveness through. And I wanna kind of frame it in three questions. Here are the three questions I wanna work through. Question number one, what is forgiveness? Question number two, what creates the capacity to forgive? And question number three, how should this petition affect our prayer life? Those are the three questions I want to work through. So here's question number one. What is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? If you've ever done any thinking about forgiveness, you know that is a, a, a very complex question, and it deserves a very nuanced and complex answer. There is a lot to the issue of forgiveness. Now, in this passage, I think Jesus gives a great kind of 30,000-foot view of it, though. And he does it by offering a metaphor. In this metaphor, he is showing us what the heart of forgiveness is. And in this metaphor that he's using, he uses the, the idea of debts. So if you can just imagine, if someone you know, borrowed $1,000 from you, in that moment, they, they now owe you something. They are now indebted to you. And he uses that imagery of a person being in debt and applies it to forgiveness. And if you just want a working definition from the fifth petition, from Jesus' words in the fifth petition, you, we, you, you know, maybe we could use this. Here's a working definition. Forgiveness is canceling the debt another has accrued against you. Forgiveness is canceling the debt another has accrued against you. In other words, they have sinned against you. And in their sin, they have accrued a debt. That They have indebted themselves to you in that sin. And forgiveness is taking that debt that they have accrued against you and pardoning that debt. It's wiping away that debt. It's, it's not treating them over that debt any longer. It, it's taking that debt they've accrued against you, and rather than making them pay for that debt, you're going to willingly absorb it yourself. That's forgiveness. Now, in saying that, it brings up what, what I think just needs to be recognized about forgiveness. In light of forgiveness being absorbing another person's debt, they've accrued a debt against you, you're not going to make them pay, but you're going to pay. We just all need to kind of embrace forgiveness is a form of suffering. When you don't retaliate, but you say, yes, you have wronged me. Yes, you have sinned against me. But rather than throwing a punch back, I'm going to absorb the punch you dealt me. That is a form of suffering. And, and I'll guarantee you in this room right now, there are men and women suffering. I mean, they are feeling suffering deep down in their bones as they are working forgiveness out in their life. It is intense suffering. Now, Thomas Watson, he's an old Puritan. He uh, wrote a little article on the Lord's Prayer. And in that um, booklet or that article, he answers a question. When do you know that you've forgiven? So if forgiveness is canceling the debt another person has accrued against you, when do you know that you've forgiven? I want you to listen to his answer. It's going to be up on the screen for you. 
He's answering the question, when do we know that we've forgiven? We've forgiven when? That's the question. Here's his answer to it. He says, we've forgiven others when? When we strive against all thoughts of revenge. When we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them. When we grieve at their calamities. When we pray for them. When we seek reconciliation with them. And when we show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. That's when you know that you've forgiven. When you've made a commitment to do those things. Now let me just take those in parts really briefly. There's seven components to what he says here. Let me just comment briefly on each of them. The first thing he says, you, you know you've forgiven when you resist thoughts of revenge. Now he doesn't say when you resist revenge. He says when you resist thoughts of revenge. That, that's how you know. Now, let me just clarify one kind of aspect of, of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a one-time event in any of our lives. If you've ever struggled through really deep hurt, you know that about forgiveness. It is not like a one-time magic button, you know, button that you push, and then after you push that magic button, you never have another ill thought about that person or that situation. That is not how forgiveness works out in any of our lives. It's not a one-time event. It is a lifelong commitment. In particular, it's a lifelong commitment to resist thoughts of revenge and retaliation. It's a lifelong commitment to turn off the tape that we start rolling, that tape of how they've wronged me, what they've done to me, how they've hurt me, how they've sinned against me. It's a commitment to take that tape, to push the stop button on that tape. It's a commitment to do that, to fight against, to strive against those feelings of of bitterness and resentment. It doesn't mean you're not going to have those feelings of bitterness and resentment. It's a commitment, though, a lifelong commitment that I am going to strive against them. I'm going to fight against these things. I love how Ken Sand in his book, Peacemaker, says it. He gives four promises that we make in forgiveness. Four promises that when we forgive a person, we're making these promises when we forgive. And here's the first promise, he says, that, that is accompanied with forgiveness. The promise goes like this. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not rehash it. I will not lay in bed just allowing that thing to simmer and to go over what I should have said, what I would have said. If I could go back now, how I would, to to turn all of those things off and to no longer play those tapes in our mind. You you know you've, you've forgiven when there is a lifelong commitment to resist thoughts of revenge. He goes on. You you know you've forgiven when you don't seek to do them evil or mischief. I think that comes directly from 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See, this is Paul saying, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to anyone and to everyone. Now, another point of clarification. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you lay aside all consequences of a person's sin. As a, for instance, uh, do you remember the moment where David sinned against God? and Bathsheba, and Uriah, sinned against all of them. He confesses his sin, repents of it in Psalm 51. And, uh, but what does the Lord do? He forgives him, but did that mean all the consequences went away from from David? No, if you know the story, there's a lot of consequences that told David from that point forward in his life, followed David from that point forward in his life. So it doesn't mean that we lay aside all consequences for, for that particular sin. But what it does mean is that we lay down the want and the perceived right to retaliate for that sin. It means that we lay down all of those things. That we're no longer out to get them. We lay down our guns. It means that. 
We're no longer, we're no longer looking at them down the barrel of the shotgun. The shotgun's down, and, and we're laying down that right to retaliate. We no longer seek to do them mischief or evil. Then he goes on, the third thing. Here's the third component. We, we know that we have, we're practicing forgiveness. We've made the commitment to forgive when we wish them well. When we no longer wish them evil, but we actually wish them well. Um, I, I think passages that lead into this are some of the most difficult in the Bible. As if, for instance, this is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Is there anything more difficult to doing good to those who hate you? Like, that person hates me. And at the same time, you're going to look at that person and say, now how can I do good to them? I, there, there's just few things as difficult as that. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. You just, cuss, you know, cuss me out. And now my response to that is, how in the world can I bless you? This is forgiveness in the Bible. Pray for those who abuse you. You see that? It's saying we're wishing them well. We're working for their good. I, I love how um, one author said this. He said, forgiveness is a work of God's love in the human soul. So it's a work of grace within us that compels us to give ourselves for another despite being sinned against so that the other might love God more deeply. See how other-centered forgiveness is? If we are caught up in our own world, in our own lives, we can never forgive. But it's this work of grace in our soul that enables us to get past our own hurts and our own woundedness to, to ask the question, what would it look like for me to love this person in a way that would help them love God more deeply? See, now, now part of what this is walking us into is forgiveness is not just looking at a person saying, okay, fine, I won't kill you. Forgiveness is looking at a person and saying, no, it's not just that I'm not going to kill you. I'm actually going to seek to do good to you. But I want good things for your life. Fourth thing, you know you've, you've forgiven when you grieve at their calamities. I think this comes straight from Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. That's hard to do, isn't it? To look at an enemy, someone that has deeply hurt you, and then now all of a sudden they get hurt. That is very difficult in that moment not to rejoice that they're being hurt, isn't it? I mean, you can just kind of see what's happening here. You're getting the picture of forgiveness actually takes a divine miracle happening in our heart. It takes us being a new creation. It takes the grace of Jesus just exploding in our lives to produce this sort of thing, that we would grieve at their calamities. Something bad happened to that person who wounded us or hurt us or sinned against us, and we would actually grieve that that just happened to them. Fifth thing, he says, you know you've forgiven when you've made the commitment, the lifelong commitment to pray for them. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They hurt you. Our response to them hurting us is that we would pray for them. If you have people in your life right now that you are harboring, I mean, it's just, oh, it's so difficult right now to not harbor bitterness and resentment. I think one of the best things you can do for your own soul in that is that you would commit to pray for them often. You would commit to ask the Lord to bless them, to help them, to speak to them, that you would pray for them often. Number six, he says, you know you've forgiven when you seek reconciliation with them. This is, this is Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
forgiveness. When we forgive another person, it positions our heart in, in the place where upon their repentance, reconciliation is now possible. Forgiveness positions our heart in that place, that it makes reconciliation. Reconciliation can look a lot different depending on the situation, but it makes it possible. Where, where between us, there is no longer this massive chasm. It makes that possible. Now, let me clarify again. For reconciliation, for the full fruit of forgiveness to play itself out, it requires two things. One is that the offended person would forgive. Secondly, that the offending person would own their sin, repent of it, and turn from it. It requires both of those two things happen. But when both of those two things happen, it positions these two people in such a way where, where reconciliation can happen. I love how Sam Storms puts it. He says, true forgiveness pursues relationship and restoration. I love this last phrase. He says, true forgiveness is not satisfied with simply canceling the debt. It longs to love again. I love that. True forgiveness, he says, isn't satisfied with saying, okay, you, you've accrued a debt. I'm going to wipe away the debt. True forgiveness isn't satisfied with just wiping away the debt. True forgiveness is saying, no, I'm not just going to wipe away the debt. I actually long to love and be re-engaged and be restored in an appropriate way to this person. That, that's forgiveness. And then seventh, he says, you know you've forgiven when you're always willing to come to their relief. He gets this directly from Romans chapter 12, verse 20. If your enemy, now just think about that. A person has declared war on you. They are trying to, to ruin your life. An enemy. I mean, they want you dead. An enemy. If your enemy is hungry, what do you do? You feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, what do you do? You give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And burning coals is not a way of like punishing them. To heap burning coals on their head is a way to wake them up. When you love an enemy, when you lay your life down for an enemy, when you take a person who has deeply wounded and wronged you, and then you respond to that wrong by canceling their debt and pursuing them in appropriate ways, it is waking them up to the grace of God at work in that moment. He says, this is how you know when you've forgiven. Now, this is what forgiveness is. It's canceling the debt and it's proactively pursuing them. It's canceling their debt in such a way where you stop wanting the worst for them and you actually begin to wish them well. It's canceling their debt in such a way where you stop wanting wrath for them and you actually want good for them. That's forgiveness. It's this sin-canceling, this debt-canceling grace that is extended toward another person in our life. Now, let's just take a moment here and just ask the question. Are there any places in your life where you are harboring bitterness, resentment? Where you're harboring unforgiveness? Where, where you have received a wound and rather than, rather than responding by absorbing that debt, you know, absorbing that wound, rather than doing that, you just returned wound for wound. Is there any place in your life where that is going on? Now, let me just bring some urgency to this issue and some seriousness and gravity to this issue. Look back in Matthew chapter 6 at the two verses that follow the Lord's Prayer, verses 14 and 15. And look at what Jesus says here. Verses 14 and 15. Here's the weight of forgiveness. For if you forgive others their debts or their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you your debt and your trespasses. But if you do not forgive others their debts and trespasses, neither, hear this, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is not teaching justification by you extending forgiveness. Okay, that's not the point here. What he is saying, though, is that for those who have experienced forgiveness, here is what they will eventually do. Extend forgiveness. And if a person is unwilling to extend forgiveness, here is a question they should begin to ask at some point. Have I actually experienced forgiveness from God? You see what he's saying? People who have experienced forgiveness, they then extend forgiveness. And when we refuse to do that, it is saying something about our experience of forgiveness. So I'm going to ask you this one more time. Is there any place in your life where you're harboring bitterness and resentment? And, you know, I, I wish I could just crawl into our hearts right now because I know in this room there are many of us who are locked down in this area right now. Such deep hurt that we are harboring grudges that we're just nursing and I think the Lord is looking at all of us this morning and inviting us. This could be the greatest day of your life. This could be the moment when you let that go. This could be the moment where you commit for the rest of my life, I'm canceling the debt and I'm gonna war against all the feelings associated around that debt. I'm gonna war against those things. It could be the greatest day of our life in any places in your life where you're harboring bitterness and resentment. Question two. What creates the capacity to forgive? If that's what forgiveness is, it takes a supernatural work of God in our heart. What creates the capacity in our soul to forgive? Now, I think the Lord's Prayer in this particular petition clues us into one very important um, kind of clue as to what, what it is that does create the capacity. Here, here's how the fifth petition reads. And forgive us our debts. That's part one. Part two, phrase two as we also have forgiven our debtors. Part one, God, forgive us of our debts. Part two, then help us forgive our debtors. And I think the clue embedded into this, the way this is phrased goes like this. It's only when we believe and taste and experience deep down in our bones, phrase one, that we can do phrase two. It's phrase one, God, forgive us of our debts that creates the capacity to do phrase two. Forgive us, or we'll you know, extend forgiveness, that we'll forgive our debtors. Phrase one creates the capacity for phrase two. Now to see this play out in the Bible, flip forward a couple of chapters to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching about forgiveness. This is kind of the, the issue he is, he is on in Matthew 18. And then you get down to verse 21 of Matthew 18. Jesus is just taught on forgiveness. Then Peter says this. Peter comes up to him and said to Jesus, Lord, let's have a conversation here. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I mean, how often? How many times do I have to do this? Then he gives like a hypothetical answer. Maybe it's this, Jesus. As many as seven times like my brother sins against me, he owns it, I forgive him. He does it again. He owns it, I forgive him. He does it a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, a sixth time, a seventh time. Jesus, surely that's enough, right? The eighth time, I am surely, I mean, it's, it's got to be okay for me to start harboring unforgiveness and bitterness then. Jesus responds. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 70 times seven. 
Jesus is not saying, hey, do the multiplication, that's how many. He's saying it's like an infinite number. Jesus' point here is, he's looking at Peter saying, Peter, you want to put all of these boundaries and all these limits around forgiveness. If it's this much, then you don't forgive. If it's this big of a thing, then you don't forgive. If it's this many times, you don't forgive. And Jesus is saying, listen, here's the thing about forgiveness, Peter. It has no boundaries. It has no limits to it. Jesus is essentially saying, I don't care what they have done, and I don't care how many times they've done it. Forgiveness is what I'm asking. Then he goes on and tells a parable. Part one, I'm just going to recount the parable. Here's part one of the parable. Uh, Jesus tells a story about this king. And this king is looking around at his subjects, and he sees this one subject has an insurmountable debt. It's a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, if a person in the first century heard that, it wouldn't even make sense to them even know what that would look like. It's like us in this room, me saying, um, you owe a person $10 billion. If somebody said that to me, I, okay. I don't even know what that means. I just know there's a lot of zeros. That's all I know. I can't even fathom what $10 billion means or looks like, right? It would be an insurmountable amount to pay. If somebody said that to me, I would just look at them and say, good luck getting that. Can't help you there, right? So it's an insurmountable amount. And the king looks at him and says, you owe 10,000 talents. It's a $10 billion debt. Today's payday. Let's do it. And he looked at the guy and says, if you can't pay, I'm going to throw you in jail. I'm going to sell your kids into slavery. It's going to go bad for everyone. And the man then who owes this $10 you know, billion debt, he gets down on his knees. He pleads with this king to forgive him. And this big-hearted, gracious king looks at him and says, done. $10 billion. I'll absorb it. You owe nothing. Now, that is the picture. The first part of the parable is the picture of not just a big-hearted king, but the big-hearted king and God of the Bible. So the, the picture in the Bible is we all in this room, every human being on this planet has an insurmountable sin debt. It's a $10 billion debt. You don't have a hope of paying the debt. An eternity in hell away from God forever will not pay the debt. That is an insurmountable debt. It's a debt that you could never pay. Yet the big-hearted, gracious king of the Bible looks at us in the mess of our debt and says, but here's the good news. I'm gonna send my perfect, beloved son. He's gonna live a perfect life for you. He's gonna die the death that you should have died. And here's what's gonna happen on the cross. When he climbs up on the cross, your $10 billion sin debt is gonna come crashing down on him, crucifying him, crushing him, killing him so that all who put their faith in Jesus can now be reconciled to me. All who put their faith in Jesus can have their debt wiped away. All who put their faith in Jesus will no longer have a $10 billion debt. It will be paid in full. This is why William Tyndale, um, the guy who translated uh, the Bible back in uh, a few centuries ago, this is why he said, the good news of Jesus makes a man's heart glad. It makes a man's heart leap for joy. It makes a man's heart sing and dance. You see why he says that? He says that because we have a hopeless situation. We are the guy who is about to be enslaved forever because of our sin debt. And God has said, but not you. My, because of my perfect son, Jesus, you putting your faith in him, you're no longer held enslaved to that debt. It is paid in full. That's the picture of the first half of the parable. Then you get to the second half. In the second half of the parable, uh, as the story goes, the man who has just forgiven that $10 billion debt, he looks around then, and, and thinks, and he sees one, one guy that owes him some money. And, and this one particular guy owes 
um, 100 denarii. A denarii would be about a day's wage. So he owes, maybe we'll call that $200. So $200 times 100. That's a $20,000 debt. So he's looking at this guy, and he sees a guy who owes him a $20,000 debt. And, and he says, he looks at this guy and says, hey, buddy, today is payday. It is the day where I need the 20 grand that you owe me. And the guy's like, I can't pay it. I want to pay it, but I can't pay it. I just don't have the money. So he throws this guy in jail. Then you get to verse 32, and you see the point of the, the parable, the point of the story. Matthew 18, verse 32, Jesus says, Then his master, the king, the guy, the guy that just forgave him the $10 billion debt, then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the point of the parable. Let me read it again, verse 33. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his $10 billion debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. There is a lot of gravity to that, isn't there? Here's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that Christians should be the most forgiving people in the world because Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. That's the point. We should be the most forgiving people in the world because we are the most forgiven people in the world. This parable is showing us not just what we are to do, forgive, it's showing us what creates the capacity to do what we're to do. Do you see that? It's, he's not just saying, hey, y'all forgive. He's showing us in this parable what creates the capacity in our heart, what unlocks forgiveness in us. And, and here's how we might could say it. The parable is showing us that our unwillingness to let go of our grudges against others is directly related to seeing God's willingness to let go of his grudges against us. Do you see that? If you're unwilling to let go of a, of a grudge you have against someone else, it means that you have lost sight of God's willingness to let go of his grudge against you. The capacity to cancel the relatively small debt others have accrued against us is created. So that capacity to forgive those debts that others have accrued against us is created by seeing the massive debt that God has canceled toward us. Do you see how those two relate? That the only way you will ever look horizontally to other people and forgive them of their relatively small debts is to look vertically and to see the massive debt God has canceled to you. Maybe we could say it this way. Forgiveness is not grounded in what another person has done to you. Is it a small thing? Is it a medium thing? Is it a big thing? And, and based on that, I'll kind of decide if I'm going to forgive or not. Forgiveness to another is not based on, not grounded on what another has done to you. Forgiveness is based on what God, through Jesus, has done to you. Do you see that? What he has done for you. That's what forgiveness is based on. Forgiveness is not based on how bad is the thing they've done. Forgiveness is based on how great the thing is that Jesus has done. And when we see how great the thing Jesus has done, it unlocks forgiveness regardless of how bad this side is. Are we seeing that? 
See, until we see this massive debt that we've been forgiven of, we'll never cancel these smaller debts. These will always feel like billion-dollar debts until we see the debt that, that Jesus has forgiven us from. See, the problem in this parable is that the man has lost sight of, of God's great debt-canceling grace. He's lost sight of it. Unforgiveness is the fruit of uh, forgetting how God has forgiven you. Unforgiveness in your life. It's the fruit, it's it's what grows out of a heart that has forgotten how God has forgiven you. It's it's a sin, not, not first and foremost of unforgiveness, but of forgetfulness. Listen to how Paul Tripp describes this. He says, a lifestyle of unforgiveness is rooted in the sin of forgetfulness. So if there is a lifestyle of unforgiveness, it means that you have forgotten something. If you're a son or daughter of God, you have forgotten something. What have we forgotten? We forgot, we forget that there is not a day in our lives that we do not need to be forgiven. We forget that we will never graduate from our need for grace. Do you know that about you? There will never be a day where you arrive to the point where you don't need grace any longer. Never going to happen. We forget that we have been loved with a love we could never earn, achieve, or deserve. We forget that God never mocks our weakness. He never finds joy in throwing our failures in our face. He never threatens to turn his back on us and never makes us buy our way back into his favor. When you remember, when you carry with you a deep appreciation for the grace that you have been given, you will have a heart that is ready to forgive. See, what this parable in Matthew 18 is showing us is that if we, are, if, if we are gripped by grudges this morning, it is showing us that we are no longer deeply gripped by grace. If we're holding on to grudges, it's because we have lost sight of grace. We are no longer deeply gripped by grace. But when we are deeply gripped by grace, when we are seeing this massive sin debt that we, that we have had canceled for us, it unlocks and creates the capacity now to extend that same forgiveness to all of these lesser debtors. We'll end here. Question three. How should this petition shape our prayer life? So just ask yourself the question, why did Jesus insert this language into the model prayer? So he's teaching us how to pray. Why would he pray? Why would he insert into these categories? Why would he insert this into it? I think this is the answer. So that every time we pray, we'll be reminded to explore in our praying the category of forgiveness. Because he really wants us to be reminded that every time we pray, we should explore this category. We should think about this category of forgiveness in our life. I think that's the reason that he does this. Um, Years ago, I read a book by a guy named Neil Anderson where, where he said this. He said, most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. Most of the gained ground, most of the ground gained by Satan in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. And I think that's true. I think it's the reason that Jesus inserts the fifth petition into the Lord's Prayer. He knows we live in a messy, fallen, complicated world where things that happen to Jennifer happen, where things that happen to Ronald happen. We live in a world so broken by sin that these things happen. And unless we are consistently reminded, 
We need to pray and seek and look for forgiveness in our life or the lack thereof. He knows that if we don't consistently remind ourselves of that, we will sink into the hole of unforgiveness. So let's just end here. What does it mean for us to have our prayer life shaped around this issue? What does it mean to to allow the fifth petition to shape our prayer life? I think it, it, it could come down to two things. And you may could add more to this. I'm just gonna give you two ways that I think this could shape our prayer life. Way number one, that every time we pray, we have a moment where we ask the Lord this question. Father, is there anyone in my life right now that I'm holding a grudge against? And I'm just going to ask you right there where you are, would you be just bold enough to ask that question to the Lord right now? Is there anyone in my life where I'm holding grudges, bitterness, resentment? I'm nursing grudges. I'm harboring unforgiveness. Let me make one point on forgiveness. I think this is a really crucial thing for you to consider. If you wait until you feel like forgiving, you will never forgive. The act and commitment of forgiveness in virtually everyone's life precedes the feeling of forgiveness. And here's the ironic thing about that. When you make the commitment prior to feeling like you want to make that commitment, when you make that commitment to forgive, here's the strange thing. That commitment then, and you striving and fighting against bitterness and all of these things, that commitment then has a way of severing the oxygen line that feeds that bitterness and resentment and all the negative feelings that make it where you don't want to forgive. But, but it takes the act of, of feeling, or the act of doing it, the act of committing to it, virtually always precedes the feeling. So if you are hung up right now on, I just don't want to do it, God's looking at you in the eye and saying, I know you don't, but this is the moment to do it. Right now, right here is the moment. It, it is the, it's the moment where you get to lay it down and trust that, that God, that he will then meet you with appropriate feelings along the way. So I think this is one way it should shape our prayer life. Father, Am I holding any grudges? The second way I think it should shape our prayer life is for us to flip it and to ask this question. Have I sinned against others in ways that I now need to go proactively seek their forgiveness? Have I sinned against others? Am I the the cause of this? Do I need to own something and repent of that? Not just to you, God, but to that person. Do I need to look at people in the eye in my life, look at them and own my sin before them, acknowledge my sin before them, and repent of that sin before them. Let them know that I am striving against that sin. Are there any areas in my life where that needs to happen? Any people in my life where that needs to happen? This is what it means for this, you know, for this fifth petition to begin to shape the way that you pray. It means that you're asking, God, is there any places where I'm nursing grudges? On the other side, is there any places where I'm sinning against people that I need to go proactively seek their forgiveness? Is that true for anyone in your life? And I want to say this last thing. I'm going to give you a second to think through this. The Lord is looking at all of us right now, and in either one of those two categories, I need to forgive or I need to go seek forgiveness from this person. The Lord is saying, this could be the greatest day of your life. This could be the day where you stop dragging around the baggage of guilt because of your sin done to someone else. And it could be the day where you lay down just that massive bag in your life of nursing that grudge. There is 
I, I think in our life, in, in the life of a Christian, there is no time that we look more like Jesus than when we're willing to cancel the debt of another person. There's no time that we look more like Jesus than that. And the Lord is saying, can I invite you into that today? I want you to go there with me today. Let's pray. Now, where you are, I just want to ask that the Lord would begin to talk to you. And would you ask the Lord to do that for you right now? Would you ask the Spirit of God right now to speak to you in ways that you need to be spoken to? Will you ask the Lord right now to bring to mind anyone that you're holding grudges against? Will you ask the Lord right now to bring to mind anyone that you have sinned, that you have not looked at them in the eye, owned that sin, and sought their forgiveness? Just ask the Lord right now to, to bring to your mind those people. Now, as the Lord is doing some work in your heart, I want you to look up on the screen. And I want you just to, to follow along as I read this passage in Matthew chapter 5. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Isn't that ironic? It doesn't even say that you have sinned against them. You just know that there is a divide in the relationship. You know that something isn't right there. That there is distance that shouldn't be there. Your brother has something against you. You have sinned against him. He sinned against you. There's just something is wrong. If you know that, then leave your gift there before the altar and go. Go to do what? First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, we have the privilege to finish our service this morning by taking communion, which I just can't think of a better thing to finish our service with. We are seeing a visible picture of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When you take the bread and dip it in the juice and you eat the bread, you're reminding yourself of the billion-dollar debt that was paid for you. You're reminding yourself of the big-hearted God of the Bible forgiving you of your massive, unpayable debt. And it's only in that, remembering that, that will unlock forgiveness toward others. So I just can't imagine a better way for us to end this service by thinking upon these things, by, by being visibly reminded that Jesus was crushed with our $10 billion debt so that we could be set free. That then sets us free 
to pardon all of these lesser debts that people accrue against us. So Father, would you help us in this? Father, I pray that right now you would be convicting, you would be speaking. And Lord, I know that for so many of us in the room, dealing with bitterness and resentment is so hard. Likely right now we're putting up all sorts of defense mechanisms against you, trying to keep you out, trying to keep you from addressing these little issues and areas of our heart. Lord, break through. Break through right now. Come and save us right now. Come and get us right now. And here's how communion works for us. Communion is for those who are in right relationship with the Lord. So that means that if you have never put your faith in Jesus, before you take communion, take Jesus. We would love to celebrate that with you. We would love to celebrate with you as you step across that decisive line of faith and you hold up your life to the Lord and say, I am yours. I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But it also means that we are in right relationship. Any sin, any bitterness, any unforgiveness that's there, we deal with it now before we take communion. So with that said, we've got two tables up front, one in the back. We just want to give you a little bit of space where you are, and when you're ready, feel free to come and take communion with us this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.